This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. We're about to kick off our year in review news panel. Just before I welcome in Michelle and Joita, for the sake of transparency, I want to tell you that I've been fighting tooth and nail for two weeks not to have this show overly jammed up with year in review content as well as holiday content. Just because we go on hiatus as of 11 a.m. Eastern time today, I didn't want people to fall into that trap. But then this week, I fell into my own trap and I said, if it's the last day before our hiatus and it's the news panel with Michelle and Joita, we have to do a year in review because a whole lot has happened in 2022. So here I am breaking my own rules, struggling with myself. That's the life that I lead. So let's welcome in Michelle and Joita. Michelle McQuig, how are you? I'm fine, Dave. How are you? I'm well. And Joita Gupta, how are you? Good. Thank you. So let's get into this. There is a whole lot of subjects to reflect on, but let's begin with healthcare because healthcare has been front and center throughout the year. The Omicron wave of the pandemic strained the system early in the year. The overall robustness of healthcare was put into question during funding fights between the feds and the provinces. And now with the flu and COVID and RSV, health professionals are once again sounding the alarm about the system's fragile state. Michelle, what's your takeaway from this year in healthcare? My takeaway from this year in healthcare is that we're starting to finally reckon with some of the questions that COVID started to raise. This feels to me like an inevitable sort of next chapter in that conversation. Um, COVID itself placed unprecedented strain on the healthcare system that was already buckling under a lot of pressure. We're now seeing those chickens come home to roost, I think. And uh, the conversations that are happening now, unfortunately, are having are taking place against a backdrop that's really scary for a lot of people. Yeah, I think we've reached, my takeaway this year is that we've reached the noodles at the wall phase. And as we all know, not all noodles are homemade rigatoni. We have some provinces <laughs> talking about opening new uh, new med schools. That's British Columbia with Simon Fraser University. Saskatchewan, they're bringing in 1,500 nurses from the Philippines to try and bridge some of their gaps. Ontario is putting a lot of extra pressure on pharmacists. I'll have that news story about Paxlovid a little bit later in the show, being given the authority to pharmacists to offer up those prescriptions. Newfoundland and Labrador moving towards tele health. Everybody's throwing their own noodles at the wall. Some of these solutions are good. Some of these solutions are bad, but it feels like we've hit the let's actually try some solutions phase of the conversation. Joita, what's your takeaway from this year in healthcare? I think um, it's really demo- it really demonstrates a couple of things. One, I don't think anyone really anticipated that the pandemic would last as long as it has. Uh, Omicron was quite severe, but it has, certainly hasn't been the end of the road. We're still dealing with rising rates of COVID infection, and now you've got the flu and the RSV thrown into the mix. You've got these three different things swirling around, and I think it's put a lot of pressure on the healthcare system because of uh, COVID fatigue and mask fatigue, where perhaps the infection rates around COVID would not have been as high as they are right now, because we've seen a number of jurisdictions, and in fact, you know, everywhere across Canada, we've seen these mask mandates being relaxed all across the board. So I think what we see with the healthcare system, and I, I forgive me for stating the obvious, is that it is a system in crisis. But I think where things have gotten really more complicated is that in 2020, towards the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot more unanimity between the provinces mm-hmm. and the federal government in trying to be on the same page. And I feel a deep sense of regret that that has now broken down. If you remember the minister's meeting, I think we talked about it a few weeks ago. People are just not being able to be at the table together to find solutions. I 
really feel that we would be remiss, though, in saying that these problems are entirely brought about due to the pandemic. We have to step back, especially for those of us who've worked in the news media and covered stories about long wait times and, uh, you know, healthcare shortages in, in up north, for example. These are problems that have in large part predated the pandemic. Back to borrow Michelle's phrase, the chickens have now come home to roost because the system had no wiggle room and no way to really uh, anticipate or accommodate a sustained healthcare crisis. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of solutions is we often talk about funding, who should fund whom and how much, and I think those are important conversations. But partway through the year, I had a really exciting opportunity to work on a story about teams-based care, where you would bring in health professionals from different um, backgrounds. You could have social workers, you could have occupational therapists, you could have doctors working in a hub model to try and provide a primary care in a more holistic way. So I've also sort of turned my mind towards whether there are solutions that are possible that don't involve spending money because there seems to be endless quarreling about who spends how much on healthcare. Strategy is not always built around finance. There's no doubt about that one. Like I said, we're blowing through this stuff quick, guys. So that's it. We're closing the book on healthcare. That said, one of the tentacles of the pandemic was the freedom protests in Ottawa and several border crossings early in the year. After several weeks, the federal government introduced the Emergencies Act to give law enforcement more powers, including the power to freeze financial assets of suspected protesters and supporters. The protests ended, but the act remained top of mind over the last few months. A mandated public inquiry looked into the lead up and the use of the legislation. Michelle, as the dust has settled, what's your reflection on the protests and the Emergencies Act? That's just, that's just it. I'm not entirely sure the dust has settled, to be honest. This, to me, if I had been asked to vote in my own newsroom's poll for news story of the year, this would have been the one for me. Uh, the, the, the Freedom Convoy protests, the anger they tapped into, the disruption they caused, the inquiry they triggered, the questions that now linger. This is not something that's going to go away. This particular force, though the ones behind the Freedom Convoys, felt very, very mobilized and and, and emboldened by this. And now having a lot of COVID measures relaxing, even though many of them were, not, were, were done totally independent of this convoy, I think a number of them feel a sense of victory. And now they're hoping to extend that victory and that sense of, of having a voice into the political realm. And I think they made strides on that front. Uh, we now have a head of the official opposition who was extremely friendly and receptive to this group of people and, and what they represent and the, the positions that they espouse. Uh, this was a rare kind of crazy moment in Canada when we saw people who were actively calling for the overthrow of the government at the door of Parliament Hill. Really unprecedented times. Uh, definitely the hardest story I've ever been involved in as a journalist to cover. So on a personal note, that really struck home for me. But it's about a whole lot more than that. It's about, to me, uh, some some rifts that are becoming more and more visible in Canadian society. And I don't think we're done with this one just yet. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what uh, Paul Rouleau has to uh, say in terms of his final reports, because I thought the inquiry focused a little bit too much on sort of the experience in Ottawa rather than what was going on at the political level. I thought that was the purpose of the inquiry. So I actually thought they missed the mark a little bit, at least in terms of the testimony. Oh, interesting. I know there was, I know there was a lot of text exchanges. I know there was a lot of emails that were examined as evidence, but I really felt like there was too much of like, 
it was a tough time in Ottawa and police were overwhelmed. Yeah, we figured that out in three days, guys. We watched that. We had cameras. Let's get the politicians on the stand. I thought it was really lacking some of the political accountability in real time. So I'm really interested to see what Paul Rouleau has to say in his final report. Joita, I like that Michelle quibbled with my idea that the dust has settled. So as the dust is settling, what's your reflection <laughs> on the protests and the Emergencies Act? I don't think the dust has settled. It's far from settled. As you noted, Paul Rouleau is to still hand down his uh, verdict on the uh, whether the uh, inquiry, uh, on the basis of the inquiry, whether the uh, Emergencies Act was used appropriately. And one can't help but think back to uh, the War Measures Act, which at the time had been very popular because there was a crisis, there was a sense that something had to be done about it immediately. Again, that should sound very familiar to those of us who've covered the um, the convoy protest. Life in Ottawa was brought to a standstill. People were really struggling. And at the time, um, the government brought in the Emergencies Act. And I don't think the government has really lost ground because they did. If you look at the polling, the Liberals are still doing quite well in the polls. So no one's really taken them to task in the court of public opinion about bringing in the Emergencies Act. But of course, during the inquiry, you start to hear these really interesting things from uh, the governor of Canada and from Christian Freeland saying, we were concerned about economic factors and uh, Canada's reputation on the world stage. And suddenly you start to scratch your head and go, but were we just talking about a national security question or was there something else going on? So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the final verdict is on the use of the Emergencies Act and whether history will judge the Liberals a little harder. Because, you know, in, 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 in retrospect, when you look at the, uh, the Emergencies Act, People have gone on to say in the decades since that maybe it was a bit of an overreaction. So I don't think the story is going away anytime soon. Certainly it'll be one that we'll be watching in 2023, if not beyond that, mm. because the way that people are reacting to it now may be very different from how people are reacting to it down the road, five, 10 years down the road. That's well put. The War Measures Act to this day remains an academic fascination for a lot of people studying political policy. It's been a busy year elsewhere in federal politics. Here's a few highlights for you. The federal liberals and NDP struck a deal to keep the government in power until 2025. The conservatives ousted Erdo Tool and chose Pierre Poiliev as their new leader, as Michelle identified. The Green Party brought back Elizabeth May. That's just the view from 10,000 feet above. There's also been developments in child care. I mean, that happened as, as recently as yesterday. Dental care, affordability, and all kinds of other policy. Joita, what's your big thought on federal politics this year? I'm going to preface this by saying I could be wrong. So with that said, I don't anticipate a great deal of instability moving into 2023 based on everything that you just said. I think uh, the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP is a solid one. I don't think the NDP will necessarily want to back back off from it if they can manage to uh, push through some of their policy platforms like the dental care and pharma care and child care. Those are things that the NDP has traditionally uh, really um, you know, fought for. And if you think about the Green Party, it's really interesting after the fiasco with anime poll to see that Elizabeth May, who said, oh, no, 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 I'm done. I'm never coming back. It's very interesting to see that she's come back. And really, the Greens are doing quite badly in the polls. They lost a lot of ground. And it would be interesting to see with Elizabeth May back at the helm, whether they're able to gain some of that ground back. Pierre Polyev is very interesting to watch because he um, is something of a populist figure. Michelle noted correctly that he has been quite sympathetic to the convoy protest. And yet, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be a leader who could translate support from the base, the, you know, the 
for the Tories to being someone who would be who would necessarily be considered prime ministerial. So again, I don't anticipate any big upheavals or upsets based on how uh, things have lined up on the chessboard, uh, based in you know looking at federal politics. But you know, famous last words, I could be wrong. So I mean, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm assuming 2023 will see more of the same, but. You never know with politics, right? Yeah, my biggest thought on federal politics is Pierre Polyev. He certainly has carved out some ground for himself. He knows how to put himself into the winning eyes of his base, at the very least. Yeah. The way he bangs on about affordability, I, I would say not supported by good economic theory, but that's neither here nor there. The people who do believe his economic theory are deeply believing in him. We don't need to look much further than the guns debate that happened this week where he carved himself out some nice space with his supporters. He does a really nice job of getting his choir fired up and they enthusiastically support him. Even if he can't go take some of those moderate voters that Erno Tool struggled to get, he may eat Maxime Bernier's voters for lunch. So that's the one thing that I'm observing here. He is managing to get his choir, his base in place, and now he has a couple more years to build on that. So that's my big thought in federal politics. Michelle, I heard an affirmation there. Yeah, I think you're completely right, but I think there's even more to it with him in that he has demonstrated an ability to not only attract the, sort of the existing base, but grow it. He brought in a crazy number of memberships to the party. Like the, the, the amount of revenue his campaign generated was wild. So he, he does have appeal uh, for those who don't get it. They really don't get it. For those who do, they're right on board and, and that appeal seems to be growing. And it's worth noting that there's going to be a bit of a litmus test for him as a leader. On Monday, there's a federal by-election in Mississauga. The, the, the Liberals are running a seriously big gun candidate in the form of a former Ontario finance minister. Pierre Poilievre has been shunning the mainstream media. Chantal Hébert actually had a very interesting analysis about all that at some point. But he has been out stumping for this candidate. So this will be really interesting to see if his appeal does translate into votes and a new candidate in the caucus. Um, in terms of other federal political things, I will have to say I would agree with Joita that I think we're into a relatively stable period. And to me, it feels like this confidence and supply agreement struck with the NDP will help uh, Trudeau and, and his acolytes try to establish what I think they're probably going to look at as their legacy period. This, this, this may well be their last chance in the sun for this kind of thing. They have three years. The policies that they seem to be focusing on and pushing for are pretty ambitious in scope, and some of them are, are relatively uncharted territory in Canada. So that's where I think we stand in terms of what this government... Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. Talk to you.